G'day guys, welcome back to Creative Coffee. Today, I have a special guest, Caesar Bukowski. Caesar runs 14 full-time karate dojo in Toronto. Yes, one city, 11,000 members. So anywhere from 500 to 1,000 members per location, but that is 14 full-time traditional karate and corridor dojo in one city. Also, check out my friend Tawari Dawson's Invisible Sensei podcast, as he also sat down with Caesar a couple of weeks ago and talked more about Caesar's history of karate and kobudo in his philosophy, whereas my episodes talk more a little more about the business side and management side of running 14 full-time karate dojo. So if you haven't already subscribed to Invisible Sensei podcast, do that now and make sure you've also subscribed to mine. But sit back, enjoy, and I'll speak to you soon. Hi, and welcome to Karate Over Coffee. My name is Shane McMahon, and I'm your host. This is a podcast dedicated to my experiences in karate. I started karate as soon as I could walk. My parents owned a full-time dojo, so I literally grew up in the dojo as our house was on top. I've lived and breathed karate my whole life, and I've trained with some really amazing sensei, competed for my country, and I've learned so much about the evolution and history of karate. And I'm here to share my experiences and learn. Enjoy. G'day guys and welcome back to Karate Over Coffee. I'm your host Shane McMahon and I've got a special guest, Caesar Bukowski. How are you Caesar? I'm fantastic, thank you so much. No. So, sorry for the uh, elaborate time difference, I think. Uh, no, 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 all good. It's 6 a.m. here in, in Brisbane and uh, 4 p.m. where you are. I am, thank you. And it's great to talk to you in the future, so maybe you can give me some information on what's coming uh, tomorrow for yeah, us. So. Yeah, no problem. Um, now, I've been trying to get Caesar onto the podcast for a while. We've been, we've been talking back and forth for a couple of years about... Um, about coming on to my podcast and my my friend uh, friend George's podcast as well, um, but due to lockdown and uh, COVID and everything else came in between, so uh, it's fantastic to to have Caesar on um, today. But Caesar, how how did you get involved in karate and, and when was that? And well, you know, uh, I, I was born in uh, Poland and in the mid mid fifties. Still very much a communist country. Uh, when I was a five, maybe five years old, uh, you know, in Poland, there's really not much stuff happening except for sports. And except the big thing is a, is a book fair. So you have this big, big book fair uh, in Warsaw where, where I grew up. And my brother bought me a book with, which was called Judo, the Deadly Art of Cell Defense in Polish. And in there, there was pictures of people throwing each other. And the last page, it said, this is the most dangerous type of judo. It's called karate. <laughs> okay. a picture of a guy poking a guy in the eyes you know with, with yeah. two fingers and i said that's it one day this is it this is what i'm going to do so when i came to canada uh you know i was nine years old uh, I, I went to the y and was looking for some sports and they had a karate class so i joined the karate class i didn't speak english and i i learned how to count in english in the karate class it was instant home for me because i, I didn't have any kind of friends or any kind of connection so so the uh, you know, makeshift dojo became kind of like a home for me. And, and basically mm-hmm. that was it. Uh, when I started, I started training every day, you know, and it was obsession from day one. If they didn't have classes, I would go to, there's very few dojos around. There's only Tsuroka Dojo and a Kung Fu school called Hanzaka. I would go and I would watch, you know, because I, I 
couldn't join. I, you know, I was too young, whatever it was. But uh, so it was, it was an obsession. I started very, very young and I progressed from there. And uh, uh, the style I was doing at the beginning was called Chitoryu. Chitoryu is uh, uh, kind of Okinawan hybrid style, basically Okinawan Shonru type style. It is, it is said that it comes from uh, you know, a couple of different teachers, but actually, which was basically what we call Kian type karate. Mm. Uh, Seisan, Pasai, Chinto, very upright, Gion, you know, very upright kind of style, uh, very short stances. So we did that. Uh, we didn't do any kind of pinan or hand katas that came in kind of later. Very simplistic uh, block punch karate. Uh, but very early, I did some Sai and, and, and Bo, but I didn't know those really called Kabuto, you know. So it was basically, we did uh, uh, karate kata with Sai, uh, and then I did two, two katas, first one was Shuji, basically. Uh, but I didn't know, I thought it was just part of karate. You know, as, as things progressed, uh, karate in Canada became much more uh, open-minded. A lot more teachers came in, there was a cross-training in the late 60s, some Taekwondo teachers came in, so kicking became a little more prevalent and sport karate came in. And I just kind of, uh, you know, malleably adjusted to the times, if you will. So, you know, uh, now we do kind of a hybrid system but it's very traditional in a lot of ways. So we practice shonru katas exactly as they've done shonru. And so if it's one kan or uh, loha, it's exactly the way it's in shonru. But gojuru, we practice all the goju katas, the way it's practical juru. We also do a lot of adjunct Chinese kind of Okinawan styles like nipai and hakutsuru. Uh, but then we also do cross-training. A lot of our instructors will, will, will teach other systems uh, adjunct to that, like BJJ or silat or kickboxing. But our core, core, core practice is Okinawan karate and kaburo. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so in um, so within your your dojo, the core core is karate, but then you can have other other classes depending on your your instructor's um, uh, right area of expertise or you know okay yeah, yeah experiences or, or wanting to do something different right yeah so the um, so how well, let, let's go. Let's go back. How did you open your your own first dojo, and where where was it? Okay, uh, I started teaching in high in high school. I was a high school student, and there was a, a high school club, karate club, after school. And the teacher who started was a, my math teacher. Uh, he didn't really enjoy the experience because the, the the kids were unruly. The teenagers wouldn't listen to him. <laughs> so he made a deal with me. I would take it over. So because I was the same age as the students. I could basically could punch and kick anybody I want and put him in line. He was a teacher, so he couldn't really do that. So uh, I brought discipline very quickly to it. Uh, and we started going to competitions. So we went to competition. People said, what dojo do you represent? And the name of my high school was Northern Secondary School. So we became oh, right. Northern Karate Club by necessity. Yeah. So uh, by 1970, I had already had students who were competing, things like that. 1972, I, I rented a commercial dojo. I was still underage. I wasn't 18 yet. So I signed a lease. Then I knew because I was underage, if things didn't work out, I could just walk away from the lease. So, <laughs> so, so, so there was a shrewd business move already. You nice. Know? Yeah, yeah. Let me write that down. But, uh, but things went very well, you know, and, and things grew. Uh, you know, in very short time, I had 50, 60 students, and I had some students living in the dojo. It was very different times, you know, in the early 70s. Mm. Uh, and we, I used tournaments as, as a means of... Uh, learning so we'd go places and i would stay day two afterwards and cross train with instructors and things like that so i met you know people like chuck merriman and jeff smith and on and on and on bill wallace and mm. joe lewis through through competitions and they you know they kind of helped me 
uh, with tidbits of martial arts training, but also business advice as well. So I took those things back to Canada and I started kind of making a hybrid system of what worked in the U.S. basically. So U.S. Yeah. is kind of maybe 10 years ahead of Canada at that time, the most progressive, you know, business marketing and yeah. all, all things. And I basically try to copy some of the models and of course do it in our own very unique way. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, were just like open style tournaments then? Uh, we, we did both. At the, be at the beginning, I competed. I didn't really know there was any difference. So, you know, at the beginning, we competed in what would be called the NK, National Karate Association Tournament. And then once I ventured out into the open competition, there was a lot more freedom, a lot more cross-training. And, you know, uh, in, in the traditional karate competitions, I enjoy that. But, you know, everybody was doing basically the same thing. I went to open tournament, and there's a guy in a gold gi doing a kung fu form and doing backflips and, you know, whatever. And it was just like instantly it blew my mind, you know? So it wasn't really that I was looking for uh, um, anything different per se, but it was just phenomenal, you know? It was like a uh, senses overload, you know? Where I would go to a traditional karate tournament, everybody had good stances and good basics and mm. scored the points. It was all about speeds, kind of sparring, you know, which was great. But the open competitions and things like demonstrations, you never really knew what you're getting. And it kind of made my mind think about the possibilities of what we can be doing. Okay. Now, be, before we go any further, we did talk about this earlier, but this is karate over coffee. So okay. do you want to show everybody what you've got there? You've got, oh. Well, I, you know, I, I have to represent, this is uh, Tim Hortons. So this is the uh, the smallest cup that they have. I'm joking. This is, uh, <laughs> else coffee. Uh, but Tim Hortons is the Canadian uh, institution, if you will. You know, yeah. Tim Hortons is a very famous hockey player. So therefore, hockey, oh, coffee. Right. You know, Tim Bits, it's, it's very close to a religious experience for us Canadians. So I had heard of Tim Hortons, but I didn't know who, who he was. I thought it was just... The, the, just I'm not sure he was the greatest hockey player there ever was, but he certainly invested his money wisely into restaurants. So there, yeah. there you go. Yeah, good on him. But um, so let, let's get let's go back to... Uh, sure. your, your, so your first dojo, uh, how, did, how did you open your, your second dojo? Well, it's, uh, it's again through competition. So uh, we're talking about 1972, 1973, 1974, 1975. And you're still... I had, uh, I had black belts from other, uh, you know, other styles approaching. And they, they had, they had Belgium. So it was not really a commercial venture. It was almost like a team competition. Mm. They, they had, they had Belgium. So it was not really a commercial 30, 40 kilometers out of Toronto, one in Barrie and, and you know, the kind of St. Catharines. But th these were not commercial dojos. I mean, you know, my, my concept of commercial dojo at the time was if I could, uh, you know, pay for the rent of the dojo and I had enough money to go to competitions. Uh, a lot of my students couldn't pay for entry fees. I had to pay the entry fees and I had to facilitate travel, things like that, mm. and hotel rooms, that kind of stuff. So it was really competition-oriented uh, generating income. A lot of times at the end of the month, I couldn't make the rent, you know, which, which I always had the money for the rent was a choice between paying rent on the 28th or going to another competition on the 29th. And most times I went to another competition. So I would tell my landlord, you know, I was sick that, that month or my leg hurt or my, my, you know, my mom was in the hospital and I would kind of get the, uh, the rent way for a month, you know. But uh, in the late 70s, I realized that uh, you can make a very good living at it. I don't mean a living in terms of like... Uh, uh, looking for, you know, it's not a greed thing, but it's just kind of making a living out of something that you love. Maybe that's what it yeah. was. 
And I started looking at uh, a lot of the American schools. I looked at the, the Junery schools, which mm -hmm. were uh, at that time to be 30 schools. And Jeff Smith was the vice president of Junery Sports. I knew him through competitions. He was very kind to me and he gave me operating manuals and things like that. Uh, then I became very friendly with another group in Minnesota. Uh, um, they had a chain of schools called Mid America Karate. And they were also forming of June Reed. There was Larry Carnahan and the Worley brothers. And they were very, very smart. The schools were sleek and students were exceptional. And I kind of, uh, I really liked the concept. So I brought it to, to Canada in 1979. And we started doing things like, and we started first doing introductory classes, which were $9.95. You do a class or two and you get a t-shirt, you know, and it's kind of, uh, that was unheard of. And then a year later, we're giving uniforms away, which most martial arts schools were confused because they, that was their main way of making money. They sold yeah. merchandise. Yeah. But they, they made money from uniforms, belts, and grading fees. It wasn't really, the tuition was just basically what paid for, for the upkeep of the dojo. So they couldn't understand how I was giving merchandise away, but they didn't realize that we were, uh, all inclusive, but we're charging a lot more than they were, and we're right. giving a lot more service with that as well. And that's already 79.80. And then we progressed from there. Uh, 1980, I launched the Black Belt Club, which was uh, anybody who'd want to enroll for a longer period of time. And then a few years later, we started the Master Club, which was people who wanted to enroll beyond Black Belt level. Uh, but all those things, uh, they, they kind of sound very commercial and, you know, uh, what people refer to my dojo like. But we always thought very traditional karate. It was always about you know, hardcore training, uh, but, but we're service oriented, you know, so we'd have more mm -hmm. classes, uh, you know, we would have, you know, things for our students to make them the training easier in terms of arriving and being there, you know, like, you know, we don't charge for water, you know, things like that, you know, we give away a lot of merchandise, things like that, but the training is the training, it's never really changed from day one. A punch has to be done specific way, and stance has to be done specific way, so that never really changed. And but the nurturing process, how we develop teaching, how we develop uh, staff, you know, uh, in, 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 the, in the 70s, early 70s, there was this bizarre concept of, uh, as a teacher, your job is to make your students quit. And then eventually the last guy left will be the, the true, true student, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I trained for quite a while with a teacher by Robert Delgish, who wrote an article for a, a short-lived magazine, I think it was called Black Belt Times from New York. And he had this article where he said it takes uh, 10,000 students to make a uh, brown belt. It takes 1,000 brown belts to make a black belt and takes, mm. you know, uh, whatever. And I had a frame in my in my office for, for like five years. You know, I had a wall. And then I looked at it in the part of my French, but I thought, what a crock of shit that is. You know, yeah, like yeah. you're teaching something where you want people to quit. It's just like saying, like, I'm going to have 10,000 customers in my restaurant and I want 9,000 of them to hate my restaurant. That's how good I am. So that's not really, you know, so it, I, I wanted to flip the numbers. You know, if we have 10,000 students, why can't 10,000 of them attain their black belt? Yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about overnight. If it takes three, four, five, seven, ten years, whatever it takes. But what can we do to nurture these people to actually attain that level and, you know, and stay with martial arts, stay with karate for the rest of their life? Yeah. That's excellent. Uh, you should, uh, I hope you have, you still have that frame so you can look at it each each time and go no i have a jpeg i look at it from from time to time it's still there you know and it's still being circulated with some of the older yeah. you know crime teachers how, how did you how do you deal with people who uh well i mean i have got it i've had it plenty of times that that say you know karate martial arts should be taught you know you shouldn't charge for martial arts you, you know karate should be should be something that you give away well, um, 
that's all those people are usually westerners first of all let's let's go with that uh yeah if you look at from you know jka and then you know uh masuyama's Shokushinkai kai group mm. uh they charge a lot of money for 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 gradings and you know there's a lot of money going back to japan the instructor drove very fancy cars you know some of the british karate teachers in the late 60s early 70s had rolls royces you know things like that mm. so just because you're in white gi with a war on black belt does not make you a saint you know it's it, one has nothing to do with the other it's it's you're a professional it's like saying you know a doctor uh, you know if you're going to a top doctor it's a top doctor mother Teresa, you know he'll he'll see sick, sick, sick people in one way mm. but that is uh you know that is that is you, you can't a doctor is a professional an accountant is a professional and a lot of times the quality of their life it represents the level of their expertise level of skill and the service they provide mm. but uh, i i i personally i believe in living a humble way you know i always talk about the trudeau the middle path you know uh you should you shouldn't not be able to afford things in life but you should not be ostentatious you know i still think we do a lot of charitable uh, things uh we're very much involved in benevolence of things you know so uh the more successful a dojo is the more scholarships we can award you know things like that so we share with community it's, it's a very important thing for us we i would say in, in a year not mind you not last two years not 2021 but prior to that and already starting now we probably give about a million dollars to charity and various things a year yeah I, i've seen i've seen that especially around christmas yeah yeah that's yeah that's fantastic um, so, but, but, but to me, that, that is really part of the, you know, the benevolence of, of karate. If karate is yep. right for right, then what, what are you doing? You know, mm. it's, it's not about how big your house is. It's really what you can do for the community and the world at large. Yeah, there's, there's not many, as I was saying earlier, there's not, a, there's not many uh, traditional karate full-time dojo um, who, who just keep evolving their training as well and keep learning and um there's a there's a there are a lot of traditional karate dojo but they're stuck kind of stuck yeah. in the 60s 70s yep. style of karate the you're moving up and down the floors doing countless kihon yeah and, and countless kata but yeah. um how how did you expand from two dojo to to is it 15 14 dojo now in just in the city we have 14 dojos in, in, in GT, greater toronto area so toronto is the largest city in, in canada about four million people but we also have affiliate dojo out of out, outside the city but the core commercial commercial schools if you will commercial meaning open seven days a week yep. and having service it's we have 14 locations and prior to covid we had just under eleven thousand active students uh, that's based on a computer uh, check-in. If somebody checked in once in a week, we mm. become kind of active. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you know it's an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of people ask me how uh, how I find the school directors. What is the process of owning a school? Type, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 100%. All our school directors are are students. So everybody was a white belt. Yep. On, on the floor, and they you know they went through a process of becoming a black belt, being an assistant instructor uh having some special uh skills you know whether it's exceptional karate skill or exceptional people skills or uh, you know a lot of them have degrees in, in, in teaching things like that uh and, and they're just you know caring professional individuals who really uh, you know they're, they're teaching martial arts not as a profession it is their profession 
but they're teaching out of passion. So if they had a choice between doing that and teaching, you know, high school math, they would certainly want to teach karate. So it's not a choice of, uh, you know, necessity, if you will. Uh, they're well compensated. You know, they, 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 you know, they make as much, as much money as any kind of professional uh, in, in any field. But it's not about the money. It's not really. It's not really a, a financial thing. It's about. Mm. It's it's about education and excellence. So do do well. First of all, how do you do? You identify them as a training, or do they come okay. to you after? Or no, no. It's 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 people that I know from day one. You know, yep. white belts and black belts and on summons, whatever. Uh, but for let's say the fourteen dojos we have in Toronto. Uh, we probably have 30 plus dojos, which are my former students. They also have dojos and they also, some of them are very successfully commercial. And the reason why I didn't want to open a Northern Karate School is because there's something in the character that I, I, I saw a flaw, a character flaw, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to get into martial arts as a, a business, that, that was not, not the way, you know, if you want to make a living as a teacher, martial arts teacher, then I would foster your, your growth and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. But you know, I, I didn't think of, of teaching karate as a default thing, you know, and I didn't think anybody should go in it just to make money. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. why a lot of those, you know, they're very good students. Technically, they went on their own and they started their own schools and they're very successful, but uh, they're not evolving, you know. And so a lot of the people who, who left me, let's say 1980 or 85 or 90, that's that's exactly what they're teaching. They're teaching that, yeah. that Northern Karate version of 1980, 85, 90 where we, we're evolving all the time because we're, we're uh, teachers second and students first. Uh, our number one uh, source of signups is word of mouth referrals. You know, some yeah. of dojos will have 75 to 80% of new members coming through referrals. Even though we spend thousands of dollars in uh, you know, web marketing, whatever it is, it's a hit and miss. You know? uh, some weeks it's tremendously effective, other weeks not so much, but oh, the I referral, yeah. as long as students leave on a high, you know, you, you have these ambassadors of, of goodwill for your dojo leaving there. So it's really important, not just from the karate concept, but also from the marketing concept to, to make them to make them fall in love with, with martial arts. Yeah. And yeah, um, especially especially when, when that person you can you can spend five thousand dollars in in advertising and marketing, but they don't know you. But when their friend says, Hey, yep. come down to this Northern Karate dojo. Yep all of a sudden you've got two people who who will push each other and stay longer yeah yeah that's excellent um in in that how how many so out of eleven thousand uh well, pre-covid and how many were those of those were in the 14 are they all in the 14 dojo yes yeah i'm talking about that we, we don't really count the outside affiliate dojos you know uh some of those people will, will train with us, but they'll teach maybe other style. They, they came, you know, but the 14 dojos in Toronto, that's core, that's our core. They all teach the same curriculum, yep. gradings. We have, we have a black belt graduation tomorrow. We have 189 people grading for black belt, graduating for black belt. So all the instructors will be there. You know, it's a, it's a very tight-knit family um, where, you know, when, when you see a, a, you know, a 45-year-old six or seven done, they've been trained since they were seven or eight with me. So, you know, it's, it's really a lot of the communication is nonverbal communication because mm. you're around each other for so long. So your values are the same, your understanding in some ways, you know, if I teach with somebody, one of our instructors, I, I just look at them and they go, they nod at me. Like, I know I was going to fix his knee anyways. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know it's just, uh, you know what I mean? It's a very symbiotic relationship. 
if you hire somebody from outside from another dojo, you don't have that kind of connection. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you've got to try to um, take everything they've learned outside and change it to, to yeah. that you, that, yeah, it, for, yeah, for me, it, it never works. I have hired outside staff, uh, great instructors before, and it might work for a little bit, but in the long yeah. run, it, it doesn't. Because yeah. they, they've got a conflicting idea on movement, for example, um, and then that sort of creeps into their their teaching, and then, yeah, all, all hell breaks loose. But back to gradings, uh, I have seen some of your gradings, and wow, mate, so, holy just the the amount of people that are grading like you, you go to a basketball or is it a, you get to a local school in the basketball stadium usually usually do it at university it's a it's a you know a, like a double gym with seating for a couple thousand people so uh, we usually fill, fill it to capacity and you know and the fire the fire marshal will come in and complain that they're going to shut us down that's a good sign always that we're doing well you know yeah, there's too many um, people yeah 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 and so do you, so out of your, the 14 schools, for example, uh, do they do their own gradings in-house or Q grades? And then you do black belt gradings all together? Okay. Uh, what we do is we do uh, a, a, a dojo grading. So in a dojo, let's say you have 10 candidates in a dojo and you'll do a grading and you'll decide eight of them are, are worthy. Then we have an all dojo grading where they go to a, a large gym and there's four stations and they perform for different teachers of different dojos and they have a card and everybody kind of scores so you need specific average to pass for specific rank and if you pass that then you're then you're going to graduation so uh every dojo person grades and usually not with their own teacher so first you grade with your own teacher then you grade with with a teacher from another dojo or senior from another dojo right like it, it works quite well works works fairly well it's no no system is ever perfect you know yep. but uh you know, my whole thing is maintaining uh, balance between uh, good level of martial arts, but not to be almost abusive in some ways, you know, it's just, you know, and it's, we always talk about personal best. So, so in addition to the quality of martial arts technique, you have to think about, uh, can the student actually perform better, you know, so I mean, we have a lot of uh, older adults training, uh, you know, we have, I have people in their 60s, 70s, I have a, a student who's 85, he still does two, three, classes a week and he's almost blind you know and he's got limitations things like that but he trains hard you know so you know the, the concept of you know what is excellent for him he, he exceeds excellence just by showing up at 85 mm. you know putting on a key on and we have little kids you know so i'm not talking about black girl but you know we have we have three and a half four-year-old children starting so this whole concept of a yellow belt you need perfect horse stance or this or that at three and a half there's no perfect anything you know just you know so yeah. My whole thing is that every belt, everything you're doing, stripes, we go, you know, stars for specific merit things. It's just a tool to make a good black belt. So mm -hmm. ultimately, those are not, for me, those are not ranks. There's no yellow belt. There's no green belt. There's no blue belt. You know, those are all tools to make a very good black belt. And that's the whole thing, you know, just how to make a good black belt. When, when you get a black belt from our schools, you become a showdown hole. And for a year, you don't get a certificate. So you get a plain black belt, nothing written on it. Most, no, you know, if you train regularly you don't really retest per se but the instructor just to give you a thumbs up so number one is you know we have a lot of teenagers training and once they get a black belt is like you know mom i got my black belt i don't have to go to karate anymore you know yeah so th this whole concept uh 
you know, it takes one more additional year. And we, we try to work on new material, things like that, make, trying to make them stay. And of course, we have huge dropout rate at, at, at that age group and that level because they've been training four, five, six years, you know, and, and, and kind of as exciting as it is after six years, you know, it's not as exciting as talking to your friends or doing Instagram things or TikTok videos, whatever. Uh, you know, it's 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 really hard to keep somebody for six, seven years. And we do that for adults is not a problem. We have adults being students with us for 30 years and they're just regular students. They, they will renew the membership, line up and train with the kids. You know, the, the attention span, if you will. And, and it's just yeah. in Karate, we're competing with all these other things on the outside. They're just kind of vying for for our students. You know, so how do, how do we fight those concepts and how do we maintain a student? That's something that I wrestle with every day. Yeah. Yeah, I often think that the competition is not other karate schools. Yeah. Competition is soccer, cricket, tennis, yeah. footy, yeah. Um, gymnastics, yeah. swimming, yeah. you know. Well, that's the end of part one of a three-part series with Caesar. Make sure if you haven't already, subscribe and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Karate Over Coffee. And if you're enjoying the podcast and in getting something out of the episodes, there are a few things you can do to help us. If you don't already subscribe to us on YouTube, please do so. We release these episodes every Friday morning, Australian time. Plus, we release some smaller espresso shots during the week on both our YouTube channel and our Facebook community group. You can also subscribe to us on our Apple or Spotify Leaving a five-star review will be very beneficial as well. If you have any suggestions or topics or feedback or anything that you want to talk about, please put it in our comment section on our Karate Over Coffee community Facebook group. If you'd like to support us, please visit our online shop where we have official Karate Over Coffee shirts, hoodies and mugs available. Your continued support is appreciated and a vital way for the podcast to keep moving forward. Thanks, guys.